Good morning. How you going? My name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, um, it's good to be here. It's better to be at the beach, which I've just come from literally this morning. Um, got a bunch of our families away at the moment uh, at a uh, sports carnival up at the sunny coast. And I think my blood thinned out in about two days, about 48 hours. Uh, but I'm not even wearing a jumper now. So there you go. It's thickening up. Um, good to be here. I... Um, we're just going to, today we're doing a second uh, in a two-part series, which is actually part of a larger eight-part series on the theological threads that kind of run through uh, Restoration Church and what's really important to us. So we're going to cover some, some, uh, some old ground for those who've been around for a while. Um, in classic Restoration Church style, we turned 11 last Sunday and we didn't tell anyone. How cool is that? Yeah, 24th of July, that was our first church service back in uh, 2011, um, and uh, if you've been around here long enough, you know that not making a song and dance about ourselves is what we like to do. Uh, every now and then we do, and it's good to celebrate when we do. We did last year, but uh, it's cool that we're still going after 11 years, and I'll tell you something, uh, the Lord's been stirring a little bit in, uh, in my spirit uh, today, um, and, and stirring about something in particular, and that's, that's this, that... Um, you know, the, the, truth, the truth stays constant, right? Uh, scripture says that the Word of God, uh, the, the flowers fade and the grass withers, but the Word of God stands forever. So that's telling you that there's, there's truth that stays constant. And I'll tell you something, we all know this, not telling you anything new, is that culture um, goes like that around the truth. And, it, and there's times where it feels like biblical truth is not particularly controversial. <clears throat> because culture's closer to it. And then there's other times where it feels very, very controversial. And uh, we just happen to be in a time, and I don't in any way mean to strike fear into your hearts, but I, we are in a time where the truth of Scripture is getting more and more controversial. Um, and I think we should expect that it would continue to head in that direction. Um, so that, that kind of raises some personal questions for us. I, I don't, uh, for a second there, just want to turn you into couple of hundred activists, all right? Not that there's anything wrong with activism, but it, it raises the question about us and where we're at and what we think. And, and today's, uh, today's message is really surrounds an area that it's actually very, very controversial. It's very hotly contested, uh, this area. And, and let me start with a bit that's not actually contested very much. In fact, I've never heard it contested. I've been a child, a primary school student, a high school student, a uni student, a teacher, a postgrad student, a doctoral student, and never have I ever heard anyone ever argue against this one. <clears throat> Humanity's got a problem. No one ever argues that, have you noticed? Ever. When was the last time you heard someone argue that humanity was perfect? Hasn't happened, right? They might want to argue something about uh, when a child's born, but it doesn't last long, right? Um, you only need to watch the nightly news to work this one out. It's obvious humanity's broken. Uh, another way to put it in classic Restoration Church speak is uh, we've all become less than who we've, made, we've been made to be. Um, and I'll tell you something, uh, who knows that the disorder within you and the disorder within other people is painful? It is, right? 
It's hard to watch sometimes. I don't know whether you feel like that. You just watch stuff, you go, my goodness, that is really hard to watch. No one enjoys being broken, right? Um, If we just had an altar call and we said, everyone who likes being broken, why don't you just come down the front and we'll all just be broken together? Uh, It's not fun. Is Is anyone with me on that? It is not fun. Like, if, if I had a vote and it was a vote about whether we we're going to be broken or unbroken, I'd go, let's not be broken. Let's not be broken people. And I'll tell you something even more, perhaps, is that no one enjoys being broken by the brokenness of other people. That's not fun either. Um, and I'll tell you something, the pain and the trouble that this uh, causes inside of us spurs humanity on for a cure, and it has since uh, humanity was broken in the very first place, you only have to go through the local self-help book uh, section of your local bookstore, which I do every now and then. I have a read of some books. Many of them have expletives now. In fact, they have expletives on the front cover. Does anyone know the one I'm talking about? The subtle art of something. Um, and then all the different versions of uh, that, kind of, that kind of thing. Um, it's, uh, it's huge, right? And, and here's, here's the reality is that everyone at some level is into human restoration. Everyone. You are, I am, we all are, right? Because it sucks being broken and it sucks being a mess and whoever's broken and is a mess and struggles wants to get out of it. And so we think of ways and we work on ways and we read books, we go and get help about how we can get out. So you just need to know that this space of people who are thinking about how to restore people is a very crowded space. It's got everyone in it, but then you can actually go to professionals, you can go to universities, you can go to philosophy, and people are thinking about how you restore people. And you know what? We're just putting our hands up as a church and saying, we'll be in that space and we've got something to say. (laughs) Is anyone with me? So we have something to say about how you restore a broken human. Uh, But the thing, this is the catch. The catch is this, that every single model of restoration brings with it a particular understanding of the person. And that's that's really important. That's really quite significant. Um, I... I'm a registered counsellor and so I need to do uh, professional development regularly. In fact, 25 points a year to keep my counselling registration. And I've gone to many training days and in-service days where experts have gotten up and talking about all sorts of things. And uh, they are very, very helpful days, let me say that. But my, my experience of those days is that they tend to get less helpful the longer the day goes. And that's not just because I get tired and it's kind of the mid-afternoon session It usually starts in the morning and the presenter uh, has done a lot of thinking about a particular condition and they they say some really helpful things and they drill down into the details of what's going on for humanity and then you kind of get around to the middle third of the day and they start talking about what actually is this thing and it's at that point I start to go, well, it's kind of a little bit that but underneath I'm going, it's not really entirely that. It could be, I think it's something else that's going on, so it gets a little bit patchy in the middle there, and then by the afternoon, um, it's probably the least helpful. I mean, they give some things that are helpful. I'm not arguing the toss on that, but um, to me, it kind of feels like um, they cashed out this gnarly, big, bad monster, and then in the afternoon, 
uh, gave some things that were helpful, but just it was like a pistol against a against a gnarly monster. It just wasn't big enough um, to tackle the task. Um, you need to understand this. The reason why things shifted for me on that day is the longer the day went on, the more the person's understanding of who humanity is came into play into the way that they were um, dealing with the issue, diagnosing the issue and, and suggesting remedies for the particular issue. So there was a guy, a behaviourist called uh, B.S. Skinner, if you're an educationalist. Anyone know Skinner? A few people know Skinner. Uh, Skinner thought people were biological machines, basically. So you just, you just rewards and punishments will help them. Um, and, and we could, here's the thing, we could actually go through a whole bunch of theories um, today. Another one is uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, which is really, really helpful, which is, I'm going to do violence to it, but it's basically you get your thinking sorted out and, and life will kind of sort out with it. And there's a fair bit of truth to that and there's a fair bit of helpfulness to it. But if you think that's the main thing, then what you actually think people are is they're mainly thinking psychological beings. Um, and so it, it kind of raises the question, um, y- your model of how you fix someone actually comes from the way that you see the person. Um, and, and humanity is very, very complex. And I think this is one of the things that we've seen over many, many years, is that if we try to nail humanity down to one thing, then um, we, we're being reductionistic. And, uh, and we're not understanding and, and taking into account the full complexity of what it means to be human. But what I do want to throw out to you today is what I think the Bible teaches about what is the core or the centre of what it means to be human. Now, there's two ways to think about someone talking about the centre. You can think about a bicycle wheel or a car wheel that's got spokes, right? And all the spokes attached to the centre, right? Um, and, and that's a helpful metaphor, it's a helpful picture. The problem with it is that there's bits and pieces of humanity that don't always connect directly to the centre. Um, they're oriented with regard to the centre, but then that, you, if you force them to connect it to it, it gets a bit weird. Uh, and I, I appreciate it. I read a uh, book a, a, little while ago, a little while ago called God's Relational Presence, and in the introduction, the author's... Uh, talked about a theologian that they'd been reading that talked about, um, well, their point was that the relational presence of God is the centre of all biblical theology. But they said not the centre in the sense that you have a wheel where all the spokes connect to it, but the centre in, in a spider's web kind of way, where everything finds its orientation to the centre and things connect into the centre, but you don't have to force everything to make a direct connection to it. And I think the way that the... the the Bible talks about humanity <coughs> is, is a bit like a spider's web, you know. Uh, humanity's complex and scripture speaks to lots of uh, different uh, facets of what it means to be human. Uh, and, and you could try and kind of force some things to what I'm about to tell you. The Bible teaches about the nature of what humanity is. Um, but I think it's better to think of it as a spider's web instead of a bicycle wheel does, it, does that make sense uh, that things some things are connected and but everything finds its orientation with regard to the center whether it directly connects or not why is this important because uh, if you want to fix someone 
you need to fix them in line with the way they've been made. Um, our washing machine uh, died a couple of weeks ago and we're pretty happy about that because I think it was the fourth major appliance that we've had fail this year that we've had to replace. So we're just we're paying someone's wage out at Harvey Norman at the moment. <coughs> Um, you know, it'd be weird, right? Uh, I think Ange went to work and I said, oh, look, I'm going to have a crack at fixing this thing, right? And if I got in there and it's like, oh, it just needs a grease and oil change. That's all it needs, right? You just go, you're crazy. That's not how you fix a washing machine, right? It doesn't need a grease and oil change. It might need some lubrication, but not a grease and oil change like a car because you actually need to fix the thing in accord with the way that it's meant to operate uh, and get it back to normal operation. What does scripture say is normal for humanity? Uh, what's normal for humanity is that we are fundamentally personal and relational. We're talking about the core here. Genesis 1 verse 26 to 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every man and his dog and probably woman um, has got an opinion on what the image of God in humanity is. All right. And the interesting thing about um, the Old Testament is the Old Testament doesn't seem particularly concerned with defining exactly what that is. And one guy, Stanley Grenz, actually suggested the reason why this is the case is because the image of God was going to be fulfilled in Jesus when he came. That's why it's a little bit obscure here. But I think there's some low-hanging fruit that we can pick here about what the image of God actually means. And one way to do that is to take the similar language that you see here and see if it pops up anywhere else. And surprise, surprise, it actually pops up in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Um, which you probably haven't got listed as one of your memory verses, all right? Um, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Interesting, right? Um, what have we got here? We've got a family. <laughs> That's what we've got. And a family is people who are related to one another. If we go back to... Um, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, what we actually see there as well is, and there's a bit of debate about whether being made male and female is part of the image of God or whether it's downstream of the image of God by theologians, but I'll tell you something, it's pretty obvious that it's there and that there's a differentiation between males and females and, and there's something about, I think I talked about this last week, there's something about, um, about Eve that she learns more about who she is by having Adam and Adam learns more about who he is by by having Eve and they both kind of need each other. And so if you put these two things together, <clears throat> and I'm just skipping through pretty quick, you can just see that humanity is personal and relational by nature. And if you're not persuaded at that point in time, I'm really happy to have a conversation with you uh, later on. But this is kind of the king hit, this next one, right? And it's, and it's this. Look at the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your, your neighbour as, you, as yourself. Is there anything more personal and relational than loving? And yet that's the summary of the law. 
This is what Jesus is saying. The main thing that we're supposed to be doing is loving. That's what we're meant to be doing. And so you can see, and I don't have time this morning, but it just it runs the whole way through Scripture that, um, that we are personal, relational beings by nature. But we're not just that. Scripture also tells us that we're uh, worshippers as well. And I want to just duck back to uh, Genesis um, Genesis chapter 2 in particular and just have a quick look at the Garden of Eden to help you to see what's going on here. Here's the first one. What I want you to see here is that the Garden of Eden is actually or was actually a temple where God was. Have a look at the, um, the similarity between the, uh, the temple and the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 verse 8. God walks in the Garden of Eden. 2 Samuel 7 verse 6, God walks in the tabernacle and the temple. Um, Genesis 2, it's just this place of flourishing, right? There's plants and there's fruit and there's all sorts of stuff. Uh, and what you actually see in the design for the temple, if you read 1 Kings 6, the description of it is it's a flourishing place and it's got lots of plants and trees kind of carved into it. And the reason why it's a flourishing place is because the presence of God is there. You go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The task for Adam is to guard and keep. And if you look at Numbers 18, verse 5, it's almost the same expression, very, very close, that the priest's job was to guard and keep. Uh, if you go to uh, um, where Eden actually was, so you've got um, the world... Um, and then Eden, and then there's a garden planted in the east of Eden. And it's fascinating because if you go to Ezekiel 40, verse 6, you find out that the main kind of entrance to the temple, a key entrance to the temple was in the east. You know, I'd encourage you, there's a guy called G.K. Beale, if you like to read about this stuff. He's done, um, I think his book is called the, uh, the Temple and the Church's Mission. And uh, I think one of the things that he actually talks about is the task of Adam and Eve wasn't just to look after the garden, but make it expand across the whole earth. That's what it was. And so we're not surprised when we get to Ezekiel chapter 28, um, where it just explicitly calls the Garden of Eden a sanctuary. All right? Um, so this is interesting, right? If the, if the Garden of Eden was a temple or a sanctuary... Then who was Adam? The first priest. That's what he was. Uh, he was the lead worshipper. That's what he was. And that's what Eve was also. And so I want to say to you uh, this morning, um, you've probably been to church services, services where people get up and they go, okay, we're going to start worshipping now. And I'm just going, well, it's technically incorrect because everyone came in worshipping. It's more accurate to say we, we want to turn our worship to Jesus if it's not there already. See, this is part of who we are. We always center on something. There's like a God slot in our lives and there's always something in it. Even when it's not God, it's something else that we make God in our lives. We always orient around something. You know, the overlap between these two categories of being personal, relational and worshipping is when you look in the Old Testament, uh, love of God is, is, is pretty much synonymous with worshipping Him, right? 
And, and part of the problem with God's people in, um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament times as well is they thought they could worship God and not actually love Him. And the truth is, I'll say this to you this morning, whatever you love the most, at any particular point in time, that's what you're worshipping. And you can't worship something properly, you can't worship God properly unless you love Him. Here's your two options. It's really clear from Romans chapter 1, right? You ready? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What are the two options for worship? Creation, creator. That's it. That's your two options. All right? Your two options. Here's uh, how Harold Best puts it. Harold Best uh, wrote a, a great book that's hard to get, so if you want to have a read of it, it's, it's a... He's a creative guy and he wrote this, um, this book for uh, the creative arts and it's theologically rich and every paragraph's like a 400 gram steak, you know, and it's like, well, I'd, I'll just stop there after that and have a think about it for a bit. But uh, it's called Unceasing Worship and um, here's what Bess says. We begin with one fundamental fact about worship at this very moment and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt, exempt and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshippers and will remain so forever. And here's the... I don't mean to be annoying and frustrating this morning for you, but no one in this room, the preacher included, has worshipped God consistently this week. True? All of us have turned aside at some point, even if it only be for 10 seconds. What do we turn to? Creation. <laughs> That's what we turn to. Something created. Um, if you put these two ideas of being relational and personal together, um, what have you got? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's, uh, it's this. We're relational worshippers. <clears throat> if we're relational worshippers, what, um, what actually happened in the Garden of Eden? Well, let's have a quick look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. This is a mess. This is a mess, right? Already it's a mess. She hasn't eaten the fruit and it's a mess. She's listening to the serpent. It shouldn't have lasted longer than about two seconds. She's having a conversation with him. Anyone who was here last week knows that she's actually designed to understand life and to interpret life through what God says. She's listening to the devil and he's telling her how to interpret her life. Um, she's already agreeing with the devil that God's holding out on her because she actually says, God told us we can't even touch the thing. She sounds like a teenager who thinks that their parents are really harsh. Um, and then the serpent keeps lying to her. 
Uh, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's a liar. Uh, and death, who knows that death is deceptive? Isn't it? Not everything that you think is good and that I think is good is good. Okay? In fact, there's a lot of stuff that we think is good that is not good. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that we think is not good is actually good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make on wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What's going on here? Do you know what's going on here? An affair. But it's a weird affair, right? Because you could look at it and you could go, well, Eve and Adam are having an affair. Is it with the, is it with the serpent? It's like, no. Nah. It's not with the serpent, right? She is listening to him. She's being persuaded by him. But is she relationally worshipping him? I don't think so. Because uh, I don't think she really cares about him at the end of the day. Um, who does she really care about? Herself. See that? She's having an affair with herself. So is Adam. Um, it's self-worship, right? That's what's going on here. She preferred herself over God. And then she gives some to her husband and he ate. And the other word that gets thrown around that describes this is pride, which is really just self-worship. Um, and humanity curving in on themselves. And this is where it all went wrong. And, you know, some people are still promoting this. And uh, I'm going to show you a clip from Lady Gaga. This is probably the first time I've ever... Eh, it's the second time probably, actually, <laughs> that I've shown this one. Uh, it's from way back in 2011. She was on the Ellen Show, and the quality's really bad. Uh, but, uh, and I blurred out part of it because, you know, she rarely wears enough clothes, Lady Gaga. Um, and, uh, and just so that you can get the point, right? So here is Lady Gaga. Are you ready? The monster ball is it's almost over. I'm very sad, though. I'm very sad. It's only a few shows left, and... She needs a rest, you guys. I've done over 210 monster balls. Wow. And you love it. I love it. And every night, I feel reinvigorated by the crowd, and we just... It's just such a... It's such an incredible experience, and I think what inspired writing Born This Way, my new album, so much was that... Uh, pop culture is our religion, and through self-worship in terms of your identity and, and through uh, honoring your identity and really fighting for who you are every single day of your life down to your core, uh, you can have more faith and more hope in life and in the future. Nothing's changed, right, in the last 10 years? Um, no. Lady Gaga, that, that's what got us into trouble in the first place, right? Um, that's what messed this whole show up. I want you to um, think about uh, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Where, where is this happening? Uh, just in the temple. Like right in front of God's face. That's where it's happening. Um, so brash, right? Calloused. 
high-handed. Do you slow down when you're driving, when you see a police car? Do you? And you're extra careful to make sure that you don't get anything wrong? Not here. You see that? Not here. Just keep going. I want to have an affair with yourself. Just get right into it, right in front of God, right before his face. You know, the um, Exodus 20, it's the top 10 list, right? Ten Commandments. The top one is, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, it can be translated, I'm sure you heard me say this before, you can have no other, you shall have no other gods before my face. So when it's you and God, don't go bringing another woman in or another man in. That's kind of what he's saying. It's like we're doing relationship, don't bring someone else in. And this is exactly what Adam and Eve did. And so you remember, if you were here last week, I talked about how humanity was made dependent by nature. Um, well, let me show you the, the flow chart of where we go, right? Um, here's the first one. We're relational worshippers by nature. And needy by nature, right? That's what we looked at last week. Um, but in the fall, what we've actually got is humanity starts relationally worshipping themselves. And if you kind of go, that's just weird, right? To have an affair with yourself is weird. And so, like, yeah, it is weird, right? And if you feel like it's a bit weird, it's meant to feel weird, right? Because it's weird. So it's when weird things don't feel weird, that's weird. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Like, that's weird. And here's what actually happens, Right? Um, is, is we kind of transition from relational worshippers of God to relational worship of themselves to relational worship of anything. And there's two sides to it. And it's these two sides, this relational worship of anything. It's high-handed and it's need. High-handed is like, I just want what I want. I'm just going to go and get it. All right? I don't really care what anyone thinks or what they say. I'm just going to go and get that. The other one is need. And I, I want to say to you this morning that we grab idols and we, we turn good things most of the time into idols and, and that's kind of going to be the case most of the time is, is um, it's a preacher said years ago, he said when you turn a good thing into a God thing, it's a bad thing, right? And that's, that's where idols go, that, that's where good things get turned into idols, right? And that's, that's the thing, most of you are probably sitting there and you're thinking about the evil people out there that do evil things, it's like, no, nah, idolatry always starts in the heart before it actually shows itself on the outside. And the things that we make gods in our heart are usually good things, right? That we've taken for our own benefit to do what we want to do. So the high-handed side of idolatry is like, I'm just going to get what I want and I'm going to get it now and I don't care what expense it is to me or anyone else, all right? But underneath that, there's a need uh, reflex to idolatry as well. Once you've disconnected yourself from God, all of a sudden there's all these, these, uh, these things that were coming to you to help you to make your life go and you don't have them anymore, all right? And so what you actually do is you start grabbing things because you can't make your life go the way that you want it to go on your own. That's the way that you've actually been designed. And so we start grasping for things out of need and... Uh, I encourage you to, um, a couple of good examples of high-handed um, and need are actually shown in those scriptures. One's Exodus 32, the other one's Isaiah 44. Exodus 32 is the, the golden calf. We just want a God 
This is what the Israelites said at the bottom of Sinai. We want a God to lead us, someone who can go before us. And so they get all their jewelry together and they make this golden calf because they just want what they want. And then if you go to this uh, Isaiah 44 chapter, it's a great read. You really should read it. If you're someone who doesn't like reading the Old Testament prophets, read that one. Read that chapter, right? Because you know what that's all about is it talks about this guy that cuts a tree down and he wants to bake some bread, so half the tree he, he uses to make a fire so he can make bread. And it's, you're meant to laugh about it, and the other half he makes an idol out of it. And he gets to the end of this whole process of making this idol, and he's tired and he's sweaty. And he says to his idol, deliver me, for you are my God. And, and so you can see in there the intention behind the idol maker is not that they just want a nice little thing to sit on their mantle, but they can't make their life go the way that they know they want it to go. And so they build this thing to help them to make their life go the way that they want it to go. You see that? So here's, here's the thing. Um, you can turn anything into an idol. Anything. Um, John Calvin said that the, uh, the human heart is a factory of idols. And I'll tell you something, you could come up to me and say, I reckon I thought of something where you can't turn it into an idol. And it's like, I reckon I could find someone if I had enough time on the face of the planet who's worshipping that thing. All right? So when we're talking about worship, we're talking about things we love, we serve, we sacrifice for, we hope in, we obey. Let me give you a few types of uh, idolatry. And a little bit of personal confession and then you guys will be welcome to come and confess to me later so you can, I'll feel better about myself at that point. Here's the first one, it's fear of man. Uh, peer pressure, people pleaser, you can call it whatever you want. Um, it's, uh, the, the words and the opinions of other people are more significant to you than anything else. Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever have... 30 seconds, where that's the only thing that matters. If you've had 30 seconds where that's the only thing that matters, you've, you've had a fear of man idol. I don't know whether you remember, uh, he might be still around, uh, the shock jock from the States, Howard Stern. Uh, I remember reading on the front of a, um, a uh, well, man, this is old, right? A magazine cover. Like, who, who reads magazines anymore? Here's what he says, the curse is, I take it so seriously, i got to know, do you think I did a good show and are you satisfied? Listen to this, he says, that's the neurosis and that's the source of all problems for me. Well, Howard, you've got a fear of man idolatry, that's what you've got. And you're stuck in it. What about this one? Food idolatry. Is food a good thing? Man, I was expected a bit more passion from that. I say, amen. Amen, food is a good thing. But who knows, food can be an idol. A constant dieting. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with diets, right? Because everyone's, everyone's going to go, Pete, there's nothing wrong. It's like, yeah, that's right. Because you do have to care about what other people think sometimes. Otherwise, you'll end up... There's a philosopher called Arthur Schopenhauer who said, don't care about what anyone else thinks. And he died alone with a couple of cats. It's a true story, right? That's what happens if you don't care about what anyone thinks at all. But if it becomes God to you, it becomes a problem. Same thing with food, gluttony. Uh, it was only last week that some people got off 
um, a cruise ship that was stuck out to sea. You remember in that rough weather? Did anyone see any of the interviews? And they got off. And do you know what they said? There was lots of alcohol. <laughs> right? There was lots of alcohol. But this even gets down not just to excess, but it actually gets down to the way that we approach food. I remember hearing a guy tell a story about when he was stressed, he just needed to get home and get his glass of red wine and sit in his chair in the corner of the room away from everyone else and he'd be okay. Now, is there a problem with having a glass of red wine? No, I'm not saying that, right? But do you see what's going on there is when he's in trouble, he runs to red wine to help him and he turns red wine into an idol at that point because he's not going to Jesus at that point. Jesus made red wine. Anyone give me an amen? Okay, well, we've got to be careful, but um, you get what I'm saying, right? Um, I have a tendency sometimes, not regularly, but I've just noticed it, that if I'm worried about something, I, I have a tendency to go and eat. And I'm not actually hungry, and that's a, that's a whole other story about my house, but Kids go to the fridge, it's like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm bored. That's how it rolls, right? Food is entertainment. But anyway, uh, you, can see, you can see the thing uh, for me sometimes will be, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go and eat something. And there is a biological reason why you feel better when you eat. So there's a tendency to go and eat something. And maybe, maybe you are uh, a fellow uh, food idolater like me. Uh, let's keep going. Is this fun? It's not really, is it? This one. Oh, self-righteous idolatry. <sighs> Thinking that you're impressive. Um, have you ever prayed a prayer that you thought was pretty good? Have you? I have. And like, it's just, like, I reckon God's, he's probably, he's giving me the wink there. Just going, you did pretty well, Pete. Sexuality idolatry. Um, sex, porn. Um, seriously, everything is about being sexy. Um, Some people are into this, I'm not so much. Shopping, idolatry, right? Some people go shopping when they're feeling bad. They go shopping for comfort. Um, Here's one that probably um, tends to be a little bit more uh, widespread in, uh, in young people, but it can actually run through anyone, and that's fun, idolatry, all right? Um, people bailing on things because they're just not fun. Um, and, and it raises the question, right? What if church isn't fun? And there's probably some of you who are visiting today and you go, this is not fun. And we're probably never coming back. All right, you see that? See the, I remember when I was an elder at, a, at my dad's church, this guy came up to me at the end uh, after a service and he goes, he goes, he didn't know that I was... Uh, the son of the guy who preached. He came to me, he goes, is that the normal guy who preached was here? <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. He goes, oh, I'm never coming back. 
Maybe you're feeling like that today. Uh, most We could just keep going, right? Because most idols are good things which have turned into a God thing and they've become a bad thing. Um, it's always that way. And the, uh, the thing that's interesting, there's lots could be uh, said about this, is um, what you actually find when you go after created things is there's an inversion in the created order. Uh, Romans 1.25 that I read before, uh, in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go... Sorry, they exchanged... That's the next one. They, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, what have you got going on there? You've got humanity. When humanity worships creation, they serve it. And this is really, this is really critical, right? Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, God said the mandate for, you, for humanity was to have dominion over creation. Not for creation to have dominion over them. But when you worship creation, you actually become a slave to it. And what you actually find when it comes to idolatry is you serve whatever you worship. Always. You become a slave to it. And I'll tell you how it works. At the start, you feel like you're choosing it. But before long, it's choosing you. And you're stuck in it. And this is the reason why... um, that's not the reason why, but one thing you'll notice in the scriptures is that the word addiction's not in there, right? If you go to your concordance and you go, oh, I've, got a, I've got an addictive problem, I'm going to go to the Bible and see what it says about addiction. It doesn't say anything about addiction specifically, but if you actually swap the word addiction out for slavery, oh, it's got a lot to say about addiction because addiction is really slavery. Uh, that's really what it actually is, and you can... See in, um, in Acts here, the uh, verse I uh, erroneously started reading before, Acts 7, uh, this comment about uh, the Israelites in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. God brought his people out of Egypt and um, who would have thought, you know, it's easy to get people out of Egypt and get the Egypt out of the people. Um, they loved the identity of being from Egypt. It was a good place to be. Um, out of the wilderness, it's not so much of a good place to be. So they turned back and wanted to go back to the slavery. And um, this, this is kind of how it works, right? Um, and I would imagine in a group this size that there's some people who know what this is like, where you choose and you choose and you choose until you're well out of control. Whatever it is. Even if it's only... Rice crackers. Now, I want to wrap this up. Um, lots that can be said about this, but one thing I want you to see this morning um, is this, this whole thing is much more serious than one might have thought. All right? Um, because in some ways you could... I've come to church today and just gone, ah, my problem is that we do bad things. And it's like, well, actually, before you did the bad thing, you actually, your heart turned to another and you had an affair. Um, And the sin was the fruit of the allegiance of your heart. That's, That's what it was. So 
And, and in some ways, it would be simpler. If it was just a behaviour thing, right, you just go, oh, I'm just going to get that thing sorted out, right? But now it becomes a little more tricky, doesn't it? Because it's a relational thing and someone was watching all the time um, everything that you did and, and, and that someone actually saw you uh, choose against him, right? Um, scriptures say that God's present everywhere um, and you did it right in front of his face and that's a precarious thing to do. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to stir up a weakling, right? But if you've got the strongest person that exists and you do something offensive right in front of them, that, I mean, strictly speaking, it's a pretty weak uh, spot that you actually find yourself in there. Uh, and, and, and it actually, this whole thing about uh, being a relational worshipper and the, the inclination of our hearts actually makes sense of a whole bunch of language in Scripture. Um, there's some stuff in Ezekiel that you probably wouldn't read to your kids before they go to sleep at night. Um, yet she increased, talking about Israel, she increased her whoring. Um, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of, of Egypt. It's, it's, um, it's about relationship. It's about uh, being unfaithful. And uh, we folks are in similar shoes um, to Israel. Uh, we're in trouble. Um, you know, let me just say this. Do you, do you really think it would be appropriate for people to, to give the sovereign God the finger? I, say, I, I intentionally say it that way um, and get away with it. It's not. But, but you need to know that that um, and, and I'll just add this, right? Because some of you go, now you're just thinking about God as this, um, this righteous judge only. But God's, God's actually personally offended as well. Um, it's not just a judicial kind of, you did the wrong thing, you turned to something that you shouldn't have. He's actually personally offended. Um, you know, that's why if you've never read Hosea, God asks um, Hosea to go and marry a, a prostitute to be a living example of God's relationship with his people. Um, and, and you see, you know, there's, there's been some debate about, um, you know, there's some wild swings in uh, the book of Hosea and uh, there's been some debate about whether Hosea wrote all of it or whatever. And I just go, well, that wild swings are what happened when you're being cheated on. Um, and it all just kind of makes sense to me. Uh, one moment you're brokenhearted, the next moment you want to kill them. Um, we realise that God's not just this vengeful, cranky judge. He's, he's an offended friend, spouse. Um, and, and here's, here's, a, here's a kicker. When, when you realise that you've done uh, the wrong thing and you, you've had this affair of the heart, you are in a completely powerless 
position. All right? There's no way you can get back by your doing. The best that you can do is turn up and say sorry. That's the best thing that you can do. You know, what, what you actually need is you actually need an advocate. <laughs> All right? And I, um, I don't know whether you're used to that phrase. Some of you probably are advocates for people. Um, advocacy is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because when someone advocates for someone else, they speak on their behalf. There's someone who's, who's weak and in a powerless position and someone comes along and speaks on their behalf. Um, and, and that's exactly what Jesus is for us, all right? In, in 1 John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't that beautiful? You, you and I need someone who can speak on our behalf. And I, I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is awesome at speaking on your behalf. He is so good. And I want to, uh, I want to leave you with a picture from uh, the Old Testament as we, uh, as we finish. Um, um, give you a bit of context. Uh, God's people, the people of Israel are at Sinai. They've been brought there to make a covenant with God. And basically, they're getting married to God as a people, right? Um, the Ten Commandments are a key part of it in uh, Exodus 20. And, uh, and then in, in Exodus 24, the covenant kind of gets confirmed and it's all kind of sealed, right? Uh, and then Moses goes up the hill again, goes up Mount Sinai again. Um, and, uh, and, and while Moses is up there, the people get all their jewelry together because they haven't seen Moses for a while and they're just going to, we're going to make an idol. And they've just made this agreement that they're going to do everything that was in the covenant. And a key part of the covenant was the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And so it's kind of like, if you just pardon the harshness of this image, it's kind of like God and the people got married and then on the way to the reception, God's people said, I'm just going to swim by the brothel, the local brothel. And I'll, I'll catch you in about half an hour. You see that? And so Moses is up the top with God, and God starts telling Moses what's going on down the bottom of the hill, right? Here's what he says. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves, have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, what leader hasn't ever thought at some point in time that's a good idea? Right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? God comes along and says, I'll kill all them and I'll do something great with you. I shouldn't say that, should I? Maybe you felt like that with your children in your families, right? It's like, oh yeah, we could really do something without these, these people. What is, what is, um, 
What does what does Moses do? What does he say? Well, Moses did get frustrated with the people, so there's a sense in which we can't understand and Moses can understand what it's like to lead people who are hard to lead. But good leaders do this. Good leaders in the church do this. They don't say, I'll just truck on alone, God. I'll look for your blessing for me. They say, no, no. We, the people need to come too. People need to come too. And this is, this is what happened. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring on his people. What's going on while Moses is advocating for the people? Well, they're all just whoring around this idol, this idol right? Haven't got a clue what's going on. Isn't it beautiful? In the depth of what Israel fell into, walked into, ran into, there's someone advocating for them and they never even considered that it was happening, nor did they ask for it. And here's the truth about us, folks. Um, we were the ones who were down the bottom having the party with the idol. And Jesus was hanging on a cross, having a conversation with the Father about us. It's a heck of an advocate, right? He brings us back in. That's what he does. But if you stand with me, I'm going to pray and um, I'm going to sing. Let's pray. Jesus, so you would um, your uh, your word says in Hebrews that um, you're a you're a priest, a high priest comes in between us and the Father um, that doesn't doesn't die. And, and what that means is that you ever live to intercede for us. God, there are many of us today who when we stop and consider it, we, we desperately need someone to speak on our behalf. We are weak. We're stuck. If we open our mouth, we'd probably just put our foot in it and just make the situation worse. 
So we need someone skillful. Someone who's persuasive. Someone who's constant. To speak on our behalf. Jesus, you, you are that, that one. You are that high priest. We want to uh, say sorry um, because uh, this week no one got it entirely right and every little thing that we did that was wrong started out as an affair of the heart. We just ask you to forgive us for that. Cleanse us. God, there are some here who are addicted to things and some of them are kind of known addictions and other things they've got going on are patterns, but they're really addictions. They're enslaved. God, we, uh, we say that we are into freedom but uh, we're actually not into freedom anywhere near as much as we think we are. And um, we just ask that you would help us uh, to see where we're enslaved, where we've chosen, 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 and eventually the thing started choosing us and now we're stuck. And help us to, uh, to walk on a path uh, to freedom. Amen.